Blue skies and rainbows. Blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven are what I can see. When my Lord is living in me, I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he promised me that we never would part. Tall mountains, green valleys, beauty that surrounds me all makes me aware of the one who made it all. I know that Jesus is well and alive today. He makes his home in my heart. Nevermore will I be all alone since he promised me that we never would part. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we will sing When We Meet in Sweet Communion. We'll sing the first and second verses. When we meet in sweet communion, where the feast divine is spread, hearts are brought in closer union, while partaking of the bread. Precious feast, all else surpassing wondrous love for you and me. While we feast, Christ gently whispers, do this in my memory. God so loved what wondrous measure loved and gave The scripture reading before the Lord's Supper tonight will come from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 25. Mark 15, 16 through 25. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, 
the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Let's pray for the bread. Our Father in heaven, as we gather for this time to reflect on your son's body that was beaten but remained unbroken and unblemished for us, we ask that we truly remember the gravity and the magnitude of that sacrifice that was laid down for us. Uh, be with those who are partaking of this bread. In your son's name we pray, amen. For the fruit of the vine. Our Father in heaven, we come again, this time remembering the blood that your son shed that cleanses us of our sin. Be with those who are partaking of this fruit of the vine that represents that blood to do so in a, in a correct manner in your sight. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we now take this time to give back a portion of what you have so richly blessed us with. We ask that we reflect on the money that we give back and that it is a true sacrifice and that we don't give back uh, unwillingly and grudgingly. And we ask that you be with the men who distribute these funds to do so in a manner that is right in the side, in your sight. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. Let's sing. I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays for me. I know eternal life He gives from sin and sorrow.
Scripture reading will be Micah and Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. And it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and that does, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. About 700 years before Christ was born, God was disappointed in what he saw in his people. They had become selfish, they had become immoral, and they had become violent. They did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. But through the prophet Micah, God was able to warn his people that he would judge them and that he would punish them for their sins. In Micah, 6, God's, or in Micah chapter 6, God's people wondered how many burnt offerings and sacrifices it would take to appease God's anger. They asked, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Micah chapter 6, verse 7. Micah answers them in the very next verse, which will be the basis for our three lessons tonight. Turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Yes, God wanted his people to obey him and to bring sacrifices before him, but before that, he wanted their hearts. And he wanted their hearts to be set on pursuing justice, on loving mercy, and on walking humbly with him. Because it does no good to obey God if our obedience to him is not sincere. Even today, God wants his people to continue to do this same thing, to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with him. For this first lesson, the question is, what does justice look like in the life of a Christian? Perhaps the best way to answer this is to consider four examples of injustice. First tonight, it is unjust to condemn the innocent. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Proverbs 17, verse 15. The Bible states, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the innocent, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. In the New Testament, we see several examples of upright, innocent men who were unjustly condemned. John the Baptist was innocent, yet Herod and his wife had him beheaded. Uh, Jesus was innocent, 
Yet the crowds vehemently cried out for his crucifixion. Paul was innocent, yet on multiple different occasions, he was stoned, he was beaten, and he was even imprisoned. Now, for us to call a person guilty when they are, in fact, innocent is just as wrong as what happened to these men in the Bible. This could include things like telling or repeating a slanderous lie about someone. Exodus 23 verse 1 reminds us, do not spread false reports. Excluding or avoiding someone just because they have been falsely accused but haven't been proven guilty of doing anything wrong is also wrong. And also, jumping to conclusions, especially concerning those we meet, without gathering all the facts. Jesus teaches, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. John 7, verse 24. Make no mistake, God says condemning the innocent is wrong. Likewise, it is unjust to pardon the guilty. Or said another way, it is just as unjust to pardon the guilty as it is to condemn the innocent. Look back at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Again, it reads, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the innocent, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So what might uh, pardoning the guilty look like? One way we might pardon the guilty is by covering up the sins of our sins or the sins of others. Like when Ananias and Sapphira agreed in advance to lie to the apostles and keep back a portion of the money that rightfully belonged to the church in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Or we might make excuses for someone else's sins by saying something like, what they did really isn't that bad. Or, you know, at least they didn't commit murder or one of those worst sins. No, a sin is a sin is a sin, no matter what way we try to frame it or how we try to justify it. We might also justify the wicked by actually approving of other sins, such as when Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, stood by and held the cloak of, of the men who stoned Stephen to death. The Bible says Saul, can, Saul was consenting to his death. God makes it clear that when we justify and pardon the guilty, we are just as guilty of sin as those very same wicked and guilty people. Third tonight, it is unjust to show partiality. It is unjust to show partiality. The Bible teaches us that God shows no partiality. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. But we as humans often do show partiality based on our own notions and beliefs and not those of God. For example, in James chapter 2, in James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, James talks about a scenario in which two different men come into a church service. The first man is dressed looking very nice and looking very wealthy. And James says the brethren would say, come in, come in, we're glad you're here. We have a seat reserved especially for you. But then a second visitor would come in with ragged clothes and not looking nearly as wealthy or important. James writes that the brethren would say, you can go take a seat over there in the back or come here sit by my footstool. By showing partiality, these brethren had become the judges with evil motives that James warns us about in James chapter 2, verse 4. Again, when we show partiality, we are not like God and we are not just. Fourth and finally tonight, it is unjust to oppress others. Look back at Micah, uh, Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. God declares, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. There were people in Israel 
who were going to who were going to other people and stealing what they had in their inheritance simply because they had the power to do so. In other words, they were deliberately oppressing others just because they were in a position of power and felt that it was their right to just go into another person's life and undermine that life. So while power and authority can be used to bless others and further the kingdom of God, we must remember that they can just as well be wrongfully misused and abused. Centuries after Micah and the oppressors of his time, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they devoured the houses of widows in Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. Now, the Pharisees were, were supposed to be some of the most well-versed men in the scriptures and then in the law. Yet they were the ones that were going, that were undermining other people's, other people's lives. Now, as Christians, we are supposed to be well-versed in the Bible. But unlike the Pharisees, we can't be, we can't be focused on these things uh, that they were focused on. And instead, we must focus on, on the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, 22. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, because this is the law and the prophets. May we as God's people truly be about treating everyone we encounter with justice and fairness, and may we, may we truly be about seeking and striving to follow the words of Micah 6, verse 8, to do justly. A man is traveling down a road on his way to a city. As he's traveling, some robbers ambush him, they beat him, they steal his money, and leave him for dead on the side of the road. A while later, a priest passes by the man who was beaten by the robbers. However, when the priest sees the man, decides to pass by on the other side of the road. A Levite also passes by the same man. However, just like the priest, decides to pass him by on the other side of the road. A short while passes, and a Samaritan passes by the man, but when the Samaritan sees him laying there in need of help, the Samaritan stops, unlike the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan stops and helps the man, treats his wounds, and takes him to an inn. This was a parable told by Jesus to a lawyer. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks in Luke 10, verse 36, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. Depending on your Bible's translation, the second quality that God desires in us can be translated in several different ways. If you have an old or new King James Bible translation, Micah 6 verse 8 reads, a person who does what is good is to love mercy. Other translations such as the ESV or NIV tell us to love kindness. So God is telling us that the qualities of mercy and kindness are to be a major part of our lives. If we do not exhibit these qualities, it is very easy to become selfish and self-centered. We can often become like the rich man in Luke 12 who had a plentiful crop but was only concerned with making sure he had enough barns to store his produce. He never even considered that he could use his crop to benefit other people around him. He was neither being merciful or kind, and because of that, God called him a fool in Luke 12 verse 20. It is a sin to mistreat others, but Micah 6 verse 8 teaches us it is also a sin to go through life without caring for others. 
Tonight, let's look at what God means when he says we are to love mercy. First, loving mercy means that we observe and consider others. When talking about evangelism, Jesus once said, lift up your eyes. In John 4, verse 35, we will never be able to be merciful if we don't lift up our eyes to see the needs of people around us. Jesus made sure to pay attention to things people, other people didn't notice. He noticed the widow's offering in Mark 12, verse 42. He listened to the songs that the little children would sing. Jesus also saw Zacchaeus, a man who climbed a tree just to see Jesus. Jesus also noticed a crowd of people that was following him and noticed that they were hungry and had compassion on them and fed them. Jesus watched other people and thought about what was going on with them. We also need to be sure we do this. We need to listen to what people say carefully, observe what people do, and consider how people feel. We will never be kind or merciful unless we begin to pay attention to others. Second, loving mercy means that we care for the welfare of others. Consider some statements that show a lack of concern for the welfare of others. I don't care how my words or actions affect you. I don't care about what happens to you. And just like Cain said in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? If we truly love mercy, we will want others to be blessed. The Bible teaches that God genuinely cares for us. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Jesus cared so much about people that the Bible states he went about doing good in Acts 10, verse 38. As God's people, we should ensure we continue to do good works. Galatians 6, verse 10 reads, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those in the household of faith. People who love mercy will want to bless the people around them. Third and finally, loving mercy means that we treat others the way we would like to be treated. The golden rule in Matthew 7:12 tells us to treat others the way we want to be treated. This exact principle is echoed in other places throughout the Bible. You can find it in Matthew 22, verse 39, which reads, Love thy neighbor as thyself. You can also find it in Romans 13, verse 8, which, also, which reads, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Another place you can find the golden rule echoed in the New Testament is Galatians 5, verse 14. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If loving mercy means that we practice the golden rule, what exactly does that look like? Here are three suggestions. In our service to others, we do not grumble or complain and serve cheerfully and gladly. Philippi uh, second, in our work for others, we take initiative and do our very best. And third, in our work for others, we use gracious and encouraging words. Micah 6 verse 8 demands not only that we treat people fairly, but that we show kindness and mercy in our dealings with others. Can it be said you truly love mercy? God has always wanted people to walk with him. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible describes God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, shown in Genesis 3.8. He enjoyed walking around the garden with Adam and Eve and seeing his creation. However, sin changed that relationship between man and God. Even though man sinned, 
God still wants his people to walk with him. However, men have not always wanted to walk with God. That's why God reminds the Israelites of his wishes in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Listen to that again. Walk humbly with God. We need to follow in God's footsteps as he will lead us to salvation. Genesis teaches us that Enoch and Noah are two men especially noted for walking with God. Tonight, let's look at three points and find out what it truly means to walk with God. First off, walking with God is a lifestyle. We can look into 2 Corinthians 5-7. It tells us that we are supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. This means we need to trust and obey God's will even when we can't see what lies in our future. We have enough evidence from the Bible to truly trust God and his will. We are supposed to walk in love. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. If we don't have love in our lives, we can't truly say we are following and walking with God. Because God said in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Next, we are supposed to walk in the truth. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. Third John 4. When we walk with God, truth becomes our constant guide along our life path and allows us to stick to the narrow way. We are supposed to walk in good works. Let's consider what Ephesians 2.10 is trying to say to us. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen to that again, walk in them. It's God's plan that we follow Christ's footsteps and do good works. Finally, we are supposed to walk in a way that pleases God. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1 says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how ought to walk and to please God. So walking humbly with God means that we are committed to a lifestyle that he has designed and spelled out in his word. Secondly tonight, if we don't walk with God, we'll walk in unprofitable things. We can look at Psalm 1-1. It speaks of a man who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. We are living our lives according to someone's advice or counsel. We really need to look and, and examine ourselves and make sure that we are not following the advice of those who are ungodly in their thinking. Next, we need to listen to Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 18. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness in their heart. This passage is teaching us that if we are doing and following what everybody else in this world does, then we are w walking the wrong way. We need to walk in the way that the Bible teaches us. Lastly, consider that the it is possible to walk in sin. Colossians 3, 5 through 7 says, 
Therefore, put to death the members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of diso disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Sometimes people commit a sin, and they never return to it. But more commonly, we, we are finding that people find themselves, quote-unquote, walking in certain sins. They practice these things constantly, and they never make any effort to walk in a different path and turn away from sin. Make no mistake, when we refuse to walk with God, the only alternative is ungodliness, darkness, and sin. Lastly tonight, we need to look at when we walk with God, we enjoy a blessed relationship. Please turn with me to Psalm 23 as we finish off this lesson this evening. Psalm 23. We will be using this passage to figure out the true reason why we enjoy a blessed relationship between God. To start, a person who walks with God knows that God will never mislead. The good shepherd knows the way that his sheep ought to walk. If you look at the first verse in Psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's pretty simple saying that the good shepherd is God leading us. A person who walks with God will find rest and strength for the journey. If you look at verses two through three there, it says, he restores my soul and he leads me on the path to righteousness. He will, he will give us strength and rest to finish our journey. Next, a person who walks with God can know peace, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Verses four, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil if you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A person who walks with God will find grace to help in times of need. That's verses five and six. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does God require of his people? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. He loves each and every one of y'all, every one of us, and he gives us these words to learn and to, to learn from. He knows that people are struggling each and every day, and he knows that there are people that are following in his footsteps every day. We need to strive to be a better version of ourselves. We need to work to become better, and that starts off with us walking humbly with God. This evening, if you're not a Christian, will you commit to start your walk with God? You have to believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and confess his name in baptism for the remission of your sins. If you already walk with God, but strayed away from the path, please come forward as we stand and as we sing. true.